electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Two major stories we are following this hour, both with big implications for your money. The first, Apple down sharply today as the number one analyst now cutting estimates for the company's services business. The other, a bombshell quote from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who says the Fed may need to raise rates to keep the economy from overheating. Stocks, they're down sharply. The Nasdaq is down big. That's where the story truly lies today. You can see a near 400-point decline for the Nasdaq today. The Investment Committee is with me, as always, to discuss all of it. Stephanie Link, Surat Sethi, Josh Brown, John Najarian. I'll take you to the wall, show you where the markets are. Under pressure all session long today. Josh Brown, the moral of this story here, it doesn't take much to push a fragile market around. And that's what we're witnessing today. Yeah, I I think the big picture thing here is that there's going to be a process that takes place whereby investors get used to the idea that at some point in our lifetimes, interest rates should be higher. And I think that obviously has to start with tapering. And we're going to start hearing about tapering every minute of the day very shortly uh, once the Fed figures out kind of its own timetable. And I know they say they're being data dependent. But um, when you look at the spread and expectations between the large investment banks and when their chief strategists think the tapering is actually going to start, what they all say, regardless of where they think the timing is, March of 22, September of 21, what they all say is there's going to be a lot of telegraphing even before we get word of actual tapering of asset purchases. So the asset purchases are over the top. We're not in full employment, but uh, the asset purchases are not the thing that are gonna, that's going to get us there. The vaccines are what's going to get us closer to full employment. The Fed knows it. The Treasury knows it. Yellen knows it. She sat in both seats. So this is what the market's going to look like the first few times we start hearing people talk less accommodatively and judge, I would just tell you it's it's overdue, and frankly, it's necessary. So I'm I, I think most people are fine with that. You're seeing most of the damage today in the digital economy, yeah. not the physical well, economy, and the highest valuated uh, growth stocks. That, that's exactly. And I'm glad you said it. You hit the nail on the head right there at the end. The way you ended that, it's the highest of multiple in growth stocks. That's where talk of higher interest rates would uh, show its its face more dramatically, just so we're all on the same page. I'll get to the Apple story in a minute and Katie Huberty of Morgan Stanley cutting her estimates for the services business, which is the lead growth part of of Apple's business at this point, and bring you up to speed with exactly what the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said at an event uh, sponsored by The Atlantic. Let's listen into the Treasury Secretary. We can talk on the other side. It could cause some very modest increases in interest rates to get that reallocation. But um, these are investments our economy needs to be competitive and to be productive. And 
Um, you know, it's you know, I, I think that our economy will grow faster because of them. OK, that that's courtesy of The Atlantic Live, as I said, the host of the event. It, as Janet Yellen was saying at the very top there, is the spending and the massive amount of spending that the Biden administration would like to do the infrastructure plan that's on the table. She's thinking of all of this in context and what you would have to do to sort of blunt that and its impact on inflation and interest rates. And that is a very, in her words, modest increase in interest rates uh, to get that reallocation. John Najarian, uh, as I said, it doesn't take much, right? And tech stocks, which were already fragile no. today, when you start thinking of the prospect mm -hmm. of higher interest rates, that's just one of the implications for why the NASDAQ would be down. But now you have the possibility of Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, who used to be Fed chair, talking about the need to raise rates when Jay Powell and the Fed seem <clears throat> intent on the idea that they're doing nothing until 2023. So you've got both of those forces yeah. working against the market today. Yeah, and you've still got, Scott, the backdrop of uh, higher taxes. Um, you know, even though Manchin has come out and said that he's more or less drawing the line at 25%, uh, an increase uh, to 25% for the corporate, um, and I haven't seen anything from Senator Manchin about, uh, for instance, the uh, millionaire's uh, uh, capital gain tax and so forth. But corporations and those taxes, Scott, that is a headwind, of course. Um, Janet Yellen now... Uh, the former Fed chairman fighting, if you will, taking the opposite side uh, from the Treasury now that she's the head of versus uh, Jay Powell and the Fed. Um, that uh, dynamic, I think, is something that people are a little nervous about, Scott. So, again, taxes for corporates mm -hmm. and the combination of Yellen going against Jay Powell because Powell has been steadfast in that they are not thinking about thinking about thinking about doing anything. Yeah. Um, and she's saying, yeah, but you might have to now. Uh, that mixed message is never going to be popular um, with any uh, <laughs> with with any market, Scott, and in particular one that has been teetering right up here at these highs for as long as it has. You used the word that I was just going to use too. this teetering notion, right, of whether we're going to have this long talked about and awaited correction or not. Let's bring in a, a mm -hmm. guest who's joining us uh, quickly to react to all of this. It's Rick Reeder. He is the CIO of BlackRock's Global Fixed Income and the head of asset uh, global allocation. Rick, uh, thank you for coming to the phone so quickly. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, so what do you make of, of Yellen's comments? When you were last with us, you said that the Fed needs to close the spigot a, a little bit. Now <laughs> you've got the Treasury Secretary and the lady who used to sit in Jay Powell's seat saying, may need a modest rise in interest rates to blunt some of the spending we're doing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, listen, I think her comments are right. I mean, I, I, first of all, when you take where rates are today, but particularly where real rates are today that are extremely negative, where we negative 88 basis points in 10-year real rates. Listen, that's not the right level. You've got an economy that is growing and it could be well into the high sevens of GDP this year. And listen, every client call I'm on, including the one I just finished when you emailed, is, uh, is talking about overheating. Everybody's talking about overheating. Listen, I think that that is right about most of these costs are transitory. And I think most are. When you, when you have a reopening like this, when you have a bid for copper and lumber and energy, you're going to get some extraordinary numbers. And when inventory levels have been drawn down across everything from houses to autos to anything retail. So you get a pop. And I think most of that is a near-term impact. However, the longer that policy stays 
this easy. As long as the liquidity in the system because is excessive, then you run the risk that you overheat or you run the risk that things, um, you know, have to the exit from this policy maybe it may have to be a bit more aggressive. So listen, I'm not that worried about an overheating inflation because there's enough technology influences and uh, and entrepreneurialism today is is literally watch everything that we see in tech. It's guided towards efficiencies from AI to cloud to everything. But I think in the near term, you know, it is uh, I think I think the Fed is being very very easy uh, with liquidity that uh, with a system that's got an awful lot of liquidity already in it. Yeah, you're not supposed to reveal the booking process, Rick. When I when I email you and say I need you at noon, I need you. This is just breaking. But we'll, we'll that's neither here nor there. The, the, inside baseball. Yeah. The question is, does anything happen with rates? Right? Does Jay Powell get to the point sooner than he wants to, or thinks that he has to, and they make a move? Yeah. So, man, I, that's a great question, Scott. I mean, I think at this point, it'd be pretty hard. I mean, they've laid out the plan, and they've been pretty uh, pretty clear in their communication across not just Chair Powell, but all members of the Fed. It's pretty hard to diverge from the path that you just laid out. Listen, I think that there is an elegant way, and, you know, what, what, um, what Secretary Yellen said is right. I think there's an elegant way you can start to pare down the liquidity and by the way, this liquidity that's happening from the Fed, the same time the Treasury, the, the, the pay down in the Ch- Treasury General account is happening, that it's just putting so much liquidity into the system that you can elegantly start to reduce the, um, the quantitative easing and support long-end interest rates for a longer period of time, where I think that is the risk, certainly the risk of the equity market. It's not, you know, the, the fact that the two-year note can move up a little bit or bills move up a bit. It is, it's that long-end interest rates. And I think the markets would like to see that and to see, you know, some pulling back of liquidity, but some support for longer interest rates versus, you know, the uncertainty of overheating. So I think the Fed can do it. I just think it's a pretty tough today after uh, if the communication from the last week. Sure, sure. That 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 becomes the, the greater issue. Let me let me ask you quickly, because I know you got to run. Um, is, is this exactly why you have recently cut your exposure to tech? because of the threat of all of this on stocks that have already had just a tremendous amount of multiple expansion, valuations are high, and higher rates mean lower stocks? So, I mean, I still love tech as an asset class. I mean, I still think this is the most exciting thing and the most exciting time in investing. And you look at the numbers from last week, I mean, it's mind-blowing. So we're still long a lot of, a lot of tech. The places that, if you, if that you know, we've cut back on are the not-profitable Technology or the or the uh, or the extraordinary um, stimulus technology um, technology that that is going to not going to be revenue producing um, matched up with their valuations for a long period of time. But I still think tech is a good place to invest. The growth rates around technology or places like healthcare are uh, are extraordinary, and uh, so I still think it's a good place to invest. But to pare back a bit given the run up. And um, and the assumption that as you get to the back half of this year that rates move higher, then um, then I think having some smaller exposure there makes some sense. Right. But I still think it's the place to be longer term. This is really going to be interesting, right? The tale of two Fed chairs, one former, one current. The commentary <laughs> that comes out over the next many weeks, if not months. Rick, I appreciate the time so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. That's BlackRock's Rick Reader there. So, Stephanie Link, it, it leaves me with this, right? We've got the commentary from Yellen 
But let's begin you and me on on tech here with what Rick Reeder said, right? It's the ARC funds over the past week. The innovation fund is down 11 and a half percent. The next gen Internet fund is down 10 and a half percent. The fintech innovations down nine percent. Genomic revolution is down 10 and a half percent. We're looking at anywhere from 23 to 30 percent off of their highs for these widely popular ETFs that a lot of our viewers, maybe a lot of the younger viewers uh, have invested in and believe in what Kathy Wood is doing very much so. Um, so what's the implication now for that? Well, <clears throat> the high multiple stocks in tech are very crowded. You have very tough comparisons going forward. I know we're going to get to Apple, but that was p part of Katie Huberty's reasoning in terms of lowering her, her numbers, but also the valuations. High valuations don't do well when you see better GDP growth, a little bit more inflation. And yeah, we should be seeing higher interest rates because the economy is certainly on the mend. We just grew in the first quarter 6.4% in GDP. That could double in the second quarter. And as Rick Reeder just mentioned, we could see 7, 8, maybe even 10% percent GDP growth this year alone. We are seeing inflation in pockets of the economy. What Where we're not seeing it is wages, and that's the biggest part of inflation, right? And so that's the thing you want to watch. You want to watch unit labor costs. But when you have better growth, a little more inflation, higher interest rates, value and economically sensitive stocks typically do better than growth. And then you add on what I just said about uh, these stocks being very crowded. So you want to be very selective. You are going to get looks. You're going to get opportunities. I think there are definitely places is you want to be within tech, look at total addressable markets, but valuations are super important as well. All right. So, Surat, you know, Carl Quintanilla ending the prior program noted that Zoom is under 300 for the first time since August. That plays into a lot of these high flyer stocks, um, ones you still think, you know, are going to be around long after the pandemic ends uh, are still getting hit pretty well, like Zoom, ZM, again, under under 300. To dig a little deeper on the, the Apple deal, it's Huberty, uh, Katie Huberty at Morgan Stanley cuts Apple services estimates. Given more difficult comps, she says, for May, June, we lower our June quarter App Store forecast to 11% year-on-year growth from 19. That's a big come down. From looking for a growth of 19 down to 11, Apple's already kind of been in the crosshairs of this market. It hasn't done anything this year. It's negative by a couple of percentage points, sinking a little bit further today, Surat, for a stock that it seems like everybody owns. So what do I do with Apple now? And if Apple can't get out of the penalty box, what does it mean for the NASDAQ at large? Well, I think what you're talking about is Apple being used as a source of funds. I mean, it's 6% of the S&P at this point. So if people are going to take money out, you're going to take it out of something that's that's a heavyweight in there. But I think to your point of the Zooms and the others that we've mentioned, their comps are even worse than Apple's because of all the stay at home. And I think the forward growth rates are going to be slower than we saw in the last four quarters. So what's happening now is not just people selling some of the high flyers. It's also a reallocation that you're going to see down the road, given that now we've got more hints of rates going up and that's going to be fueling what I would call the other sectors that, that you know, are defensive or cyclical in nature that, that can benefit from high interest rates. And that could be that's consumer staples, it's industrials, it's financials. And those have more growth opportunity in the next four to six quarters than some of the ones that you just mentioned. Staples, man, I don't know. I think yesterday, weren't we just saying that staples are the worst performing group uh, year to date, right? Because we've overloaded on all that stuff in our in our basements. Well, it's stacked to the roof now. 
So, so l- let me be specific on Staples. I, yeah. I'm talking more of companies like Diageo and Constellation Brands um, that are going to have the reopening play actually affect them as more people start going out and and ordering um, you know restaurant food and restaurant drinks. So those and even the Cokes uh, of the world. That's kind of when I look at Staples. I'm, I'm not referring to uh, the Kellogg's of the world. Okay. Uh, of that more the growthy Staples. All right. I'm glad you clarified because I was I was thinking you know toilet paper, shampoo, yeah. toothpaste, and all that other stuff that I have overflowing all over the place. <laughs> all right, Dr. J. Uh, playing on the tech thing. You bought puts in the queues. So you're looking for some downside in big yeah. tech. Yeah, we've been buying puts in the queues, Scott, for a little over a week. Um, there have been massive buyers in the queues. Uh, just over a week ago, the queues were 341 or something like that, Scott. Today it's 327. It opened at 333, um, traded straight down, and uh, they are buying puts. They're not buying them as heavily today, Scott as they did yesterday and last week. But um, when I look at our unusual activity board, I'd say it's the heaviest put buying that we've seen across the board, not just the NASDAQ QQQ, but across the board, it's pushing towards 60% of the unusual activity as puts today, which is really abnormal. And the biggest day of the year so far for that ratio of puts to calls um, in those unusual activities that we cite. So, yeah, people are seeking protection and they're seeking it quick right now. And you could understand why after that nice start to May that they'd be in here saying, well, what if this is that correction that's finally here? So they're jumping in and some of them are a little late to the party jumping in for those puts. But I think they were nervous based on Yellen's comments that you cited earlier. Yeah. Um- Caution is, is clearly spread far and wide, at least today. Let's bring in another guest, Baycrest Jonathan Krinsky. He was just with us yesterday. Um, Jonathan, today you feel compelled to put out a new note. We are reiterating our cautious outlook, you say. Continue to expect the S&P to test 39.50. You talk about semiconductors are now threatening multi-year relative trend breaks as well. Maybe looking for some downside there. Why, why compelled to put out a new note today? We just had you on yesterday talking about your outlook for the market. Why, why today again? Well, I think the semis are, are very important. Um, you know, they represent about 5% of the S&P 500. If they were a sector, they're, they're obviously within tech, but if they were their own sector, they would be um, about twice as big as four other sectors. So, you know, they're certainly significant. They're also, they've also been kind of viewed as, as a leadership group. You know, they were up 160% off the March, 2000, uh, March 2020 lows. And they led the S&P throughout most of that um, up until the last couple of months. So I think from both a, you know, a, a weighting standpoint in the S&P 500 and just a, a sentiment perspective, I think people view them as kind of a leading indicator, um, you know, very economically sensitive, but also have that growth aspect. So, um, you know, to us, semis are very important. And, you know, they're starting to, to threaten those, those uptrends we've been seeing over the last um, 12 to 18 months. And really, when you break down and look at more on an equal weight basis, it's uh, even more concerning. So the equal weight semis relative to the equal weight S&P 500 um, is now back to kind of the lowest level since last fall. Um, so to us, you know, this, if, the, if, if we were to assume they were a leading indicator on the way up, they have to be viewed as a leading indicator on the way down here. You're not the only one who's talking about this. In fact, Josh, I want you to weigh in on this. I'm looking at some commentary right now from City on the semis, which says three semi companies are saying a correction 
is coming. They're talking about Texas Instruments, on semi and power integrations. They've all guided for below uh, seasonal quarters due to double ordering. City, even though they, they talk about this, they think it's too early to talk about a correction. They expect more upside before what they call a crash. That's rather unsettling. They say the sequence of events is going to be, Josh, first, you have these shortages, which everybody in every industry feels like they're talking about. Those end. Then lead times decline for semis. <laughs> and then they say, run for the hills. So you got Krinsky talking about the technical breakdown within semis. Some of these other companies talking about reducing their own um, guidance. City talking about when you're going to get a crash and the importance of it. What do you make of it? You own some of these stocks. Yeah, so what the chip executives are talking about is a correction in, like, the demand for chips and probably the pricing along with that. What Krinsky's talking about is, is the stock price. And I, I guess what we have to ask ourselves is, do we think that something about the pandemic changed the, the entire history of the semiconductor industry from being uh, cyclical in nature? And obviously the answer is probably no, right? So... Anyone that thinks there's not going to be a downside to the semi-cycle, I think is a little bit delusional. So maybe what's going on, Judge, to Krinsky's point, is that the semiconductor names got too overheated. People were a little bit too excited about chip shortages and demand as far as the eye can see. And maybe moments like these, that enthusiasm cools off a little bit. And you could end up with a situation where these stocks correct six months ahead of the actual cycle uh, seeing some sort of a downturn. But one thing I want to point out, I think people need to be careful because demand and pricing for chips will not necessarily ebb and flow as one big monolithic industry. You're going to have some components of the chip space where demand just continues and somewhere it peaks out. You're going to have big differences uh, between all of the different verticals within semis, including semi equipment. So the names that I watch are not Texas Instruments. I'm keeping an eye on Taiwan Semi, and I'm also watching Micron, AMD, NVIDIA. I really think that those names are the leading edge as far as people's expectations for demand and pricing. Um, and then the capital equipment names are important to follow because of how widespread their products are throughout all these different ecosystems. But um, you're going to see, I think, stock prices react ahead of uh, the actual situation on the ground changing. Okay, l l let's expand more on that. Uh, Jonathan Krinsky, I'm going to say goodbye to you. I appreciate you coming to the phone uh, in a hurry as well because I want to get more. Um, Stephanie, it's NVIDIA, as Josh said, is down 8.5% uh, in a week. The SMH is down 7.5%. On Semi, which I mentioned earlier, is down 15.5%. Skyworks, which seemingly everybody's talking about, including Steve Weiss on a daily basis, is down 13.5%. Corvo, Josh just mentioned AMD. The whole space is is getting hammered pretty pretty well. Yeah, it is. Um, but they were really great performers, um, as Jonathan just mentioned. Right, they were leading us on the way up. I think you have to be very selective within tech in general, as I as I already mentioned. Um, I look at the end markets of where I want to be, and I want to be in 5G, and I, de I definitely want to be in cloud, and I want to find great management teams. That's Broadcom. And oh, by the way, it's it's trading about 16 times earnings. That's not expensive, and it has a 3.2 percent dividend yield, and it really has lagged the group. So that one I like. 
NXPI we've talked about endlessly. I mean, they just raised th their uh, buyback by 50% <laughs> and uh, they blew it away. They absolutely blew it away. And I want to own it because I like the auto cycle. I don't think we're done on the auto cycle and they are the leader. And then Lamb Research, Cap Equipment, I think is absolutely the place you want to be. And if that stock were to pull back, it's up 25% on the year. If that stock were to pull back, I would love to buy more of that because I think DRAM and NAND spending is definitely on the rise. Numbers keep going higher. So we may have a pullback, but where I have strong conviction and where earnings are going higher, those are the places into this weakness that I want to own. Like I'm looking at, you just bought more Caterpillar and Coca-Cola and you sold Bristol Myers. Did you get clearance from Kramer to do that? The Bristol Myers move? <laughs> you know, I didn't even t I didn't even tell uh, Jim that. I, I, uh -oh. I forgot. You mean um, I, sp no, I just I spilled the beans? <laughs> oh, my God. He's going to be so mad. He'll 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 be emailing me. We're on together tomorrow, so we'll see. <laughs> but um, now look, I think Bristol Myers is there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's cheap at 10 times. It has a 3% yield. The problem is I just didn't feel good about that quarter. I mean, not anywhere in that quarter did I like. And so I'm thinking to myself, all right, in healthcare, where do I want to be? I like United Healthcare. I've been in that forever. That's kind of on the growthy side. And then on, if I'm looking for yield, I just bought AT&T. It has a 6.5% yield. I think that's much more attractive than Bristol. And by the way, um, they're both trading at 10 times. So um, it's a valuation call. Um, Caterpillar, on, on the flip side, had an absolutely amazing quarter across the board. Revenues, earnings, margins. Margins expanded 300 basis points sequentially and 200 basis points year over year. And they haven't even taken price yet. So the operating leverage is substantial. Um, and the uh, enterprise cash at about $12 billion makes me feel better as well. And then Coke is a reopened name that I don't think is as obvious to everybody because it's 50% on-prem. And by the way, they had a really good quarter, 6% organic growth. And they beat on revenues and earnings. So I want to go, we're so lucky that it's earnings season. And during this tumultuous time in the markets, we can take, off, we could take advantage of the pullbacks where you have good, strong fundamentals where, again, earnings are going higher. All right, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's check the market. Look, there's Cat. It's going higher as we speak. Uh, Steph, as, as you were talking about that. So we'll keep our eye on Caterpillar. We're all over the market sell-off, as you know. Up next, we're going to talk about a stock that's up 75% in a year. Debate whether it's run its course or not. We'll debate that because it's in our call of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back with the mystery chart in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. American Airlines and Microsoft, among dozens of companies that have signed a letter opposing a new election bill in Texas, they say they oppose any measures that would restrict access to the polls for eligible voters. A number of voting bills are expected to be considered in the coming days. Severe weather continues to hammer much of the South. 
Warnings cover an area that is home to 11 million people from Georgia to Texas and North Texas. At least two tornadoes have touched down, accompanied by hail the size of golf balls. And in New York City, severe winter weather will no longer be a cause for celebration among school kids. Public schools there say that they will replace snow days with remote learning in the next school year. The nation's largest public school district says that it's taking a page from the pandemic playbook where remote classes also replaced snow days. Scott, it's uh, an end of an era, an end to snow days. So sad. You knew that it that was, was going to happen. <laughs> it was coming, but you know, they deserve to be in school learning. I saw that coming a mile away. All right, Rahel, thank you. Yep. Rahel Solomon. All right, let's take another look at the market right now. We've come off the lowest levels. It's still a bad day for stocks, especially in the tech complex. The Nasdaq is still down two and a half percent. It was down about 400 points. So it's come off that the lowest levels there. Dow's recovered quite substantially, too. The Dow's only down one third of a percent. The S&P off by more than one percent, albeit slightly a 10 year note yield still sitting just below 160 at 1594. Let me show you some cloud stocks, too. You guys seen what's happening in the in the clouds, so to speak, uh, today. Doc, you, you've got calls mm -hmm. in Twilio yep. and ServiceNow and Stephanie Link and a plan, Josh CrowdStrike. Over the last week, this space is down double-digit percentage points, too. <coughs> Doc, give me your view on those two that you have. Others probably have followed you into those names, Twilio and ServiceNow. Josh, I want to talk to you as well about this. Yeah, uh, I still like both those stocks, Scott. Um, and, I'm, uh, you know, this is one of those times where as you know, I try to be a singles and doubles hitter, which means that I'm for every option I buy, I'm selling an option above it when we're talking about calls, which that in both those cases, we are talking about calls. So um, that certainly gives me a little insulation, protects me a little bit from days like today, Scott. Uh, but I like Josh's trade. You know, I like CrowdStrike. I'll be looking to get back into that one because I exited that. Um, I'll be looking to get back in. I think last time we had an entry around 185 and it pushed up into the, you know, into the 210, 220 area, just like that. So I think you can get that kind of outperformance to see these stocks got down four to six percent in a single session. Uh, Datadog, um, CrowdStrike, you know, the, these are big percentage moves and I think they give you an opportunity, but it certainly gives you a little... Uh, acid reflux at the same time. Yeah, Josh, uh, CrowdStrike is, is a name that I, you know, I always come back to you on um, when it has big moves. And just playing off of what Doc just said ab about that drop of 12.5% over a week, you say what? Well, the stock's been in the same range since December of 2020. If you go back and look at a chart, 170 has been support. So it's now closer to that 170, 175 level than it was a few weeks ago. But it really has been in that same range. Um, they do have earnings coming up very soon. I think the earnings will be great. Uh, historically, they've been crushing earnings. And as I've said many times on the show, you can't have a whole portfolio filled with these stocks. Like, you can have a couple, but you can't let your whole life become this um, live by the gun, die by the gun, because, you, you know, you're going to have days <laughs> like this week or today, and they're going to be really uncomfortable. So... I own this alongside lots of other stocks. I understand that it's going to be highly volatile. And, Judge, I'm looking at some names that I felt I missed in the run-up last year that if they get much, much lower in price and provide an entry, I might start to buy. One example would be Zillow, stock that has been absolutely pancaked over the last couple of weeks, ticker symbol Z. 
This thing was over 200 for like 10 seconds. I think I'm going to get it under 100 bucks. Hmm. So like that's the type of thing that I try to do in this kind of environment. Um, and, and we'll see what happens. I got a whole bunch of other names on my list, but uh, that's the one that looks closest to a buy for me. Well, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you were willing to mention it. I was going to ask you if you'd tease us a little bit, but then you uh, you did it on your own and gave the name. So I, I do appreciate that. I don't tease. No, I, hey, I, I just go right for I, it. I should have figured that you would reveal the name. Our viewers appreciate it. I know that as well. I'm going to tell you the other big story today that really piqued my interest is and you, you all know, you watch the show, we, we always cite the Bank of America flow show where they see the big money going, whether it's hedge funds or big flows of institutional or retail. And their new data is pretty darn interesting. Their hedge fund four week average flows have hit a record low, they say. Hedge fund selling has reached extreme levels while retail clients have been net buyers for the 10th straight week. So that's the natural, okay, you've got the so-called smart money versus the rest of us, you know, just trying to make it and get by. One is selling extreme. One is buying for the 10th straight week. Steph, who's right? That's what everybody <laughs> wants to know. Who is right? I think there's opportunities everywhere in the market. You have to actually put it into context, though. Hedge funds can move in and out of stocks and sectors and the markets and various different parts of the regions of wherever they want to be, uh, in stocks and bonds, wherever, wherever they're focused on. So they have a much shorter term time frame in my opinion. Um, and they do a lot of hedging as well. So you just don't have the full complete story. I think the retail investor, I think they're very smart. And I think they're longer term in nature. And I know for me and, and the way I invest, I'm much more longer term in nature. I can't get in and out. I can be tactical on a couple of names, but I don't want to get in and then get out because I think I'm going to miss it. And the reason I think I'm going to miss it, even on this pullback, you want to be buying is because you still have so much liquidity in the system that isn't going away anytime soon. And that's the tailwind. And that's why I think you're going to get dip buyers. And I think the retail investor is quite smart. So, Surat, let me let me dig a little bit deeper under the surface of all of this. Selling was most pronounced in cyclical and growth oriented sectors. Energy outflows the largest in nearly two months. Consumer discretionary saw its seventh straight week of outflows. Tech outflows were the largest since mid-June. I mean, I'm sorry, mid-January. need my glasses. Since mid-January. So what are we to make of that when you saw clients selling in seven of 11 sectors? So I look at it and look at the sectors you just mentioned. Uh, they're the ones that have performed the best so far this year. And I think if you're talking about the hedge funds, Stephanie's absolutely right. Their, their time frame is very short. So they're capitalizing on this market movement, taking money off the table. Again, we don't know what they're doing on the other side. But yeah, I think, you know, that's the right thing. We, you know, if you've got stocks that have done really, really well, take some money off the table and then, you know, they're not maybe they're not redeploying. But you're seeing the retail investors, which, again, I agree with Stephanie. I think they're looking for opportunities in some of these undervalued areas. So, uh, you know, where especially so many of the, the four sectors that are trading below the S&P multiple of 22, there is opportunity out there. And maybe if it's a little early, they'll be they'll be right, I think, in the long term. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe the hedge fund selling is a contrarian indicator. Right. Power to the people. Mm -hmm. see, where, see where it all goes. All right. We're going to come back. We still have to do the mystery chart. We didn't get to it. So I promise we will after the break, along with Doc's unusual activity. And coming up at 2 Eastern today, do not miss the CNBC Small Business Playbook. 
You can join some of the most trusted voices in business to provide critical advice and vital resources to help owners overcome extraordinary obstacles and stage a strong comeback. You can check out the full lineup and register now at cnbcevents.com slash playbook. We're back after this quick break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Dr. J, unusual activity time. Wow, Scott. Um, This one, the people have been right and right and right, whoever the people are, that have been buying puts in the XBI. That's the S&P Biotech Spider, Scott. And they've been buying them basically since this was $175. Today it breaks through $130. And they're buying the May 129 puts, Scott. They keep rolling down. So this is a profitable trade that then they exit and they roll down to a lower strike. I'll probably be in this trade for about two weeks, Scott. Uh, when it, we, Just before we came on air, it was 131, falling pretty quick. Now, the other one is uh, VRRM. This is uh, basically a communications company, and a lot of what they do are uh, generating revenue for local municipalities because red light cameras and things like that. I know we hate them, but big demand. This one's way out in December, the 1750 calls. I bought a slightly lower strike, and I'll hold this one a very long time, Scott, because I think people need this one uh, to generate revenue for those municipalities. All right, so up 70% in a year, about $2.5 billion market cap. Doc, mm-hmm. thank you, VRRM. All right, we teased this mystery chart. We did it more than once. Why? Because it's up 75% in a year, and we want to know if it's run its course or not, which we'll debate next. The reveal is finally here. A bearish call on Bank of America today. That stock downgraded to neutral at Baird. They say the stock's run its course, which is why it's our call of the day. It's up 35% year to date. Stephanie Link, I come to you first. You own it. A stock that Steve Weiss gushes about so much. He just loves the job Brian Moynihan's doing almost as much as the job Brian Cornell, Pete says, has done at Target. <laughs> what do I do, though, now, for when real? All, all jokes aside, the stock's up a lot, all right? 
Has it has it run its course? Well, I mean, all the banks have risen quite a bit, right? I mean, and I own not only this one, but Wells Fargo, which is up 49% on the year, and Prudential, which has lagged only up 29% of the year. Those are the three I really like a lot. I still own Morgan Stanley as well. They've just done such a great job. But back to Bank of America, yeah, it's up 32%, it's, but it still trades at 1.4 times book. He's buying back a ton of stock. It, it basically yields about 1.8%. That's going to go up over time. And I, I just like the diversification. I mean, they really reported a very good quarter underneath the surface. I mean, securities rose 25% year over year. Investment banking rose 62% year over year and up 20% sequentially. Trading was very strong and credit cards were, uh, did very well. So, you know, obviously they're, they're, it's, uh, there's pricing in a lot of good news up here. But again, 1.4 times book, 14 times earnings. I can live with it. Surat, a complete repudiation of this call today as Bank of America shares are up 1%. In the face of a downgrade, saying it's as good as it gets. Do you agree with this call or disagree? Oh, I disagree with this call. I disagree with this call. I mean, it's one of my top holdings. And Stephanie's just right on there. I mean, to add to what Stephanie's saying is, if the lending business actually picks up, this is the, one of the best banks to actually own. And if interest rates start moving up, and we talked about it at the beginning of the show, here's a, here's a stock that actually can participate in all those avenues. Wealth management will improve. And if M&A picks up, capital markets, you, you've basically got a whole basket of inputs that will do very well. So I like it. It's a core holding in, in uh, financials. Yeah, it's all run. So a lot of stocks have run. But I think there's a lot more room to be run here. And if the stock does come back down, Moynihan can go buy back more shares. He's allowed to do that. They've got enough <clears throat> excess capital to do that. So you've got to put on the stock as well. All right. Financials, by the way, are the best performing group in today's market. Ask Halftime. It is coming up next, and you can send your questions by video. We will play them on the air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We will be right back. All right, let's do it. Let's answer your questions now. First up, Steph, I have a video one for you. Hi, Halftime Report. I'm a super fan of this show. And this is a question for the brilliant Stephanie Link. Stephanie, I know you've owned Fortnite for a while now, and it's had some zigzagging price action. What I'd like to know is, would you add to it here? Thank you. All right, brilliant Stephanie Link. What's the answer? Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much for the question. Um, I like it, but it's up 39% year to date. It has re-rated because they're actually starting to outperform their peers. Uh, they have new products in the enterprise. They're gaining market share. And the cybersecurity market is going from $116 billion, a total addressable market, to $500 billion by 2028. So I like the trends. I like the total addressable market. They're executing better. But it's up 39%, so I wouldn't chase it. Wait for a bad day, and you can pick some up then. Okay, thank you for that. Thank you for the question, too. All right, Josh Brown, video one for you. Hello, I'm 13-year-old Sam from Oakdale, and I have a question for my good friend and pen pal, Josh Brown. I'm a long-term investor looking for exposure in the real estate sector, and I was wondering which of these you prefer. Simon Property, Invitation Homes, or Store Capital? Which do you prefer for someone with a 50-year time horizon or should I buy slices of all three? 
All right. Thank you for the question. I mean, she wrote you a letter before, right, Josh? And you responded to her, Samantha, yeah. in a blog, which was very nice. What about the question now? Yeah, that you'll see that young lady on CNBC someday for sure. She is uh, as savvy as they come. So I think the right answer is to try to own slices of more than one. I always preach diversification, especially when you're getting started early in life. Uh, so one option besides those three REITs in particular would be the VNQ, which is Vanguard's U.S. REIT sector e index ETF. Very low cost. If you had owned it uh, since 2013, you've made about 106%, but only if you've reinvested the dividends. If you didn't reinvest the dividends, it's more like 80%. So I think that's how you want to own REITs. You want to own the space broadly. You want to make sure each time it pays a distribution, you're reinvesting, buying more shares at the age that you are, Samantha, and you will be just fine. All right. Thank you. All right, Dr. J, uh, video question now for you. Hello, traders. This is Charles from Atlanta. When I look at Bitcoin Coinbase or Bitcoin US Coin Metrics, I don't see very much of a correlated comparison to GTBC or OTBC. I'm looking for a stock market play on Bitcoin that more closely correlates to the actual price I see daily on Bitcoin. Thank you. I think I know where you're going to go with this one, Doc. Well, what do you have? Well, yeah. Uh, number one, I think grayscale. <laughs> yeah, just buy Bitcoin. Exactly. Um, but if you don't have access to it um, or don't want to have a wallet or whatever, you know, all the things that you need to be able to trade it, I'd say um, the Grayscale Trust is great when it's underwater, Scott. Uh, in other words, when it's less than the price of Bitcoin. And then when it's at the price of Bitcoin, I'd much rather be in Riot Blockchain or Mara, M-A-R-A or R-I-O-T. Okay. Thank you for all the questions, everybody. Please keep them coming. We'll do final trades. We'll do it next. All right, let's do final trades. The brilliant Stephanie Link starts us off today. <laughs> Estee Lauder was down 7.5% yesterday. They, they, had a, they had a good quarter. They beat on their earnings. They missed on the top line, and they, get, they gave very conservative guidance, which is what they normally do. But I thought the underlying trends were very good. And skincare up 28%, travel and retail, that's actually in, in recovering. And they saw double-digit uh, e-commerce growth as well. So I like that name on the weakness yesterday. I was looking at this name earlier today, thinking about the Honest IPO, which... Uh, Prices tonight will be tomorrow. So we'll have more on that tomorrow. It's going to be interesting. Doc, what do you got? Um, Scott, Viacom C, V-I-A-C. Archegos, of course, uh, helped take this one down when they were imploding. And now a lot of analysts like it bouncing off this RSI. I like it, too. I bought calls. All right. Thank you. Mr. Sati, what do you got? I'm sticking with Bank of America. I think this is uh, the call that was wrong, and I'd be long on this one. All right. TRB. I am weathering the volatility and crowd strike for better and brighter days ahead. All right. Stock's down four and a half or a little less than that today. 196. All, All right. Good. Yep. I hear you. All right. Thanks so much for watching. What a day in the markets and plenty more to come on The Exchange, which begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. 
with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.